if expansion and based on the amount of dark matter is different, then things might start accelerating so quickly that at some point everything is going to be ripped apart from even like subatomic particles are going to be ripped apart from each other faster than the speed of light, which mm. would overcome the strong and weak nuclear forces and all of that stuff. So like, yeah. what does that mean in terms of God's plan for the universe? Will God have to intervene and step in so that doesn't happen? Or is that God's plan? Hello, welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. I am Byron. And I am Char. And we've got some pretty far out stuff for you today. Ooh, far out. Far out, man. Um, Tell me, what are we talking about? Because, Char, we're going to be talking about astrotheology. Um, Ooh, okay. And, and many of its permutations, such as astroethics and uh, astrol- astrolatry. Um, you're going you're to have to and, do some term defining here. Oh, yeah. No worries. But first, let me pretend to be smart and like, <laughs> exclusive with all my terminology. Okay, okay. I need to like prove that I'm yes, super Dr. smart Walker, with StarCraft. Dr. Walker, take us um, along this journey. No, no, no. Don't worry. I will. Um, but yeah, I mean, quantum theology, all sorts of things uh, that have broad and sweeping implications that, have, that remain relatively underrepresented in... I think theological discourse, although yeah. it goes back incredibly far. Um, I mean, not to so yeah, right. Like C.S. Lewis wrote an, a sci-fi series called Paralandria a couple mm. many decades ago, what sixty years ago. I haven't read them, 70. but knowing C.S. Lewis, he probably worked a lot of theological theme. Into it, it. it was very theological, very allegorical. I mean, the, the entire premise was based on um, whether or not uh, certain planetary systems as orders of creation have fallen or not. Oh. So Mars as being a post-fall, like a post, like that God did everything on Mars and then did some stuff on Earth and now is doing stuff on Venus. Hmm. And Mercury is like an uncreated whatever. So like the, the anyway, it's, it's an interesting like cosmological framework that like yeah. God was working outside of the solar system in and like... Hmm maybe to some extent trying to like tweak things or improve things or I, I don't know. I actually haven't read the whole thing, but this idea of it's somewhat Narnian in this idea of uh, some person goes to um, Venus, I think it is, and is therefore the um, kind of like the, the ruler in that same, you know, son of Adam, Narnia king way, mm, okay. but also the vector for original sin. And so Satan comes along and starts trying to rule things and mess with things. Mm. That's that's what I know about Paralandria. Anyway, all that to say, like the ideas of <clears throat> some of the theological implications of what is it? What does it mean that we live in a universe that is as big as this one? Right, yeah. floating on this <laughs> tiny little dot, <laughs> right? Crumb, pale blue dot, mm-hmm. as uh, Carl Sagan puts it. Um, there's so many famous astrophysicists who are devout, and I use that word intentionally, atheists. Mm, yeah. Um, and and what, what do we make of that? Um, we think a lot about 
the overlap between science and religion in terms of creation. But what about the other end of time, mm. right? We have religiously quite a uh, a litany of of theological thoughts about the end of time, which disagrees substantially with what our modern projections from all our scientific theories lay out. Mm. What are we going to do with that? Um, other things like what if we what if we find uh, sentient life on uh, other planets? What if we what if we find unsentient life on other planets? Mm. Like all of these great questions. So that's what we'll be talking about today, um, and maybe some other things like UFO sightings mm. <laughs> and uh, uh, like I don't know time dilation and and things like that. What it, this is basically also just open be your to happy your place. This is my happy place, honestly. Okay, so like this happened a couple of weeks ago that I was talking to a somewhat non-affirming person about trans mm-hmm. identity, and like queer queer theology is obviously one of my happy places. Mm-hmm. It's also an area of like I would say rather profound expertise. Sure, but talking with this particular not affirming person just was really exhausting, and. Because um, queer theology is one of the areas. I mean, if you're if you're doing it with someone who who's like with you, queer theology and queer theory. These are some of the areas where you actually like you can't make any mistakes. Like, there's nothing that's wrong in queer theory, particularly because it queers the construct. Right. You can go any direction. And astrotheology is another one of those things where you're just so unbound. Mm. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> Do you? What am I doing? Flying out to space. Just a pun. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> um, and yeah, it became my happy space. Like I just went and watched some like uh, some videos about the scale of the universe and whether or not quantum loop gravity is a thing and how we explain uh, dark matter and things. So I'm hoping you do yeah. some famous scientist voices like Neil deGrasse Tyson during this episode. I don't, I haven't <laughs> listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson other than like to say, like, we're all stardust. No, I, I can't do his voice. Like, <laughs> I know what he says, but I'm I don't listen to him word. enough. Okay. Uh, so, I think it's important that we start at the beginning because you've listed off like 20 terms here. So things, so many things. Yes. What are we actually talking about? So, at the beginning, astrotheology. So, astrotheology, actually, I pulled up a definition. Nice. Astrotheology, and then I can I'll I'll define it as many terms as Char thinks might be necessary. Perfect. Let's do it. Um, astrotheology is that branch of theology that provides a critical analysis of the contemporary space sciences, combined with an explication of classic doctrines such as creation and Christology, for the purpose of constructing a comprehensive and meaningful understanding of our human situation within an astonishingly immense cosmos. Within so the- lay people, lay people definition. What? Um, fine. It's like, okay, so astrophysics, first of all, is like space science. Yeah. Um, planets, uh, looking at movement and development of stars. Mm-hmm. You can trace that using math back to the beginning of the the cosmos, i.e. usually the Big Bang, um, and extrapolating to the end. Which recently I read has been largely rejected in uh, astrophysiology astrophysics that they've rejected the big bang as being the origin pretty pretty broadly now i've read some articles recently i'd love to hear more on that yes Um, i would not consider myself the expert but (laughs) because that would have to change a lot of things although i mean this is one of the things is about astrophysics is that like huge things can change 
based on like tiny new discoveries, yeah, like the yeah. speed of or spin of a neutrino or something, sure. could like fundamentally disrupt. Yay, physics. Yeah. I mean, the issue, part of this is we have spent a lot of time developing uh, the standard model of physics mm-hmm. that's like Newtonian uh, stuff uh, using that describes the movement and yeah, the movement of large objects. And, and that gets uh, even Einstein, you know, relativity. That's still Newtonian, like, general physics. Um, you start adding time and light and distance and speed and things in there. But then this, and, and there's a lot of data to support that. Like, it's pretty hard to move those things around. Mm-hmm. The other side of things is quantum physics. So these are the two fields of, of science that are somewhat irreconcilable. Quantum physics deals with things at the very, very, very small level. So on the order of tiny, tiny nanometers or, or much less even, um, like the widths of atoms and, and way down. Um, Isn't femtometer the shortest measurement? Is that right? Um, I mean, a single Planck length. I don't know how many femtometers a Planck is, but, a, but that's the smallest mm-hmm. measurement. Planck's which, constant. Which it's funny that you can have an absolute small. <laughs> There's no such thing as an absolute big, I don't think. There is an absolute hot, and there is an absolute cold. Like, any any hotter, and you start vibrating things on the scale of the Planck length, at which point stuff just, like, stops existing, or, I don't know, it's very confusing. Um, so this, when God has tea, is it hotter than the hottest temperature? Only if God wants it to be, I guess. I mean, the, <laughs> this is why astrotheology is so fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, so astrotheology, right. Implications of what does it mean for theology? So Christology, it mentioned Christology. Mm-hmm. Who is Jesus in this in this understanding of the universe, right? I was talking to Z on the way here, um, who was very kind to give me a ride to school on Thursday mornings. Um, and... They asked, like, what? okay, so what is this? And I said, okay, the easiest entry point to astrotheology is this question, what if Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years? Mm, what's left? Right. Either, I mean, maybe the earth is destroyed, maybe we've, we're extinct, maybe, um, like, we're just on a dozen different planets, mm. right? What does it mean for Jesus to return to Jerusalem, as it predicts, from the clouds, which clouds? Usually Earth, right? Yeah. <laughs> what if it's an, what if it's ten million years and we're like different species by then? What does it mean for Jesus to be human? And what if the the Earth has been entirely annihilated? Right. I mean, We've the sun. We've moved to another planet. Not only that, but the sun has a time limit, mm-hmm. right? And it's more than halfway through mm-hmm. its life cycle. Um, the Earth will be uninhabitable in a little over a billion years. The Earth is the Earth is well past middle age, right? Life on the earth is well past middle age. What does that mean? Right? Sentient life is relatively new as far as we know on the earth. And and there so that's that's then the other thing. What about what about um sentient life in in other in other systems? Um you know, why there was a something I was reading recently about why why is humanity so early in the process, in in the universe? as a developed form of sentient life. And the fact that we theoretically can't identify any other sentient life out there? Right, because the two options... Oh, man, there's so many things, right? Like, what, are, what? what is the life cycle of a sentient species? Is it to expand out? Or is that just 
us mapping onto what we think a sentient species would do, imperialism. Because that's what we do. Right. Or, you know, I'm, I've been reading what Zuckerberg wants to do with Facebook and Meta and all of that stuff. We turn inward? Yeah. Do we turn inward and live in, you know, do we just build a Dyson sphere around our star, harness all of the energy we'll ever need, and just run infinite simulations? Are we just brains in jars? Are we already just a simulation from a higher <laughs> yeah. from a higher species? We're already in Zuckerberg's meta. <laughs> <laughs> or, are, or are we in Zorgulon's meta? Zorgulon's <laughs> or, or according to um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, are we in God's meta? Are, are we just figments of God's imagination? Which I think extends beyond this conversation specifically. A little bit, a little bit but it's analogous, I think. Fair, yeah. So, so quick question too, though. Um, even as you're talking about sentience, mm-hmm. which I think is very relevant to this conversation, is that the idea to be self-aware, cognizant of one's own thinking? The meta, meta, physical, meta. What's the term? Meta, cognitive, mega, metacognitive process. I mean, so one of the issues here, like in eco theology, mm-hmm. is how can we once we're expanding it to this level, how can we try to not be too human centric mm-hmm. um, right I mean we we obviously as a species have a hard time not doing that yeah you know speaking in terms of of astronomy and science people had a hard time accepting the idea that the earth was not the center of the solar system or yeah. the whole universe um, so can might we have to do a similar thing morally speaking Um. So if we discover a species on another planet, what are our assessments of its sentience? What are our assessments of the sentience of species on this planet? And that's the thing for me that, you know, the the history of racism in this world has been about distinguishing and dehumanizing such that even, you know, I don't know if the term sentience was necessarily part of the conversation, but it was certainly... Um, that idea of someone being less human or not even human right. in order to justify the violence, the repression, the enslavement, um, the genocide. Um, that you know, I, I wonder how confident can we be in this claim of humanity's distinction as sentient as opposed to other species? You know, is that not just an extension of the same desire for power and um, hierarchical structure? I can think of two directions. One is the direction that that humans in a lot of hope and maybe optimism sent out the um, Voyager spacecraft, which has now left the solar system. I mean, debatable. Or the Oort cloud is huge. Is this a legit thing or is this just this Star Wars? No, this is legitimate. The, okay. the Voyager, the Voyager, like Don Voyager probe has passed Pluto. Mm-hmm. Right. We as humanity have sent an object outside of. I mean, Pluto's not a planet anymore, I guess, but... Out- <laughs> it's okay, buddy. <laughs> I still believe in you. Um, ooh, that gets to an interesting thing. So, <laughs> astrolatry, one of the words that I said yeah, earlier... Yeah, okay, one of the ones that you need to define. <laughs> that is uh, that is the, the, the worship or the treatment of astrological bodies as if they were gods mm. or deities. Which, has which of been- course, Saturn, yeah. Jupiter... Um, Mars. Yeah, Mars, Aries... Mm-hmm. Um, it, like the the Roman and Greek names for these stars, which either represented or in maybe some cases were those yeah. deities. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's that type of thing. Uh, so there's the Voyager spacecraft, which 
yeah, we like sent out. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Pluto is something. Pluto is um, Hades, mm-hmm. god of the underworld. Um, and I don't know when all these planets were discovered. Pluto is pretty small. But so I don't know if if modern scientists discovered so Pluto and Greek s- astronomers discovered. Pluto? No, I don't know. That's what I. That's what I'm asking. I don't know if um, if astronomer, if modern astronomers, um, discovered Pluto in like the 50s or something, and in tradition named it uh, um, with the other planets. Um, fun fact: intersection of uh, my background in oceanography. Planet uh, comes from the same root word as plankton, hmm. a drifter, something that that moves uh, against. To the normal drifters off to see the world. Um, the normal move, the movements of the stars, at uh-huh. least, right? Because of the rotation of the Earth, all the stars are moving in the same direction because we are moving. Mm. The outlier, of course, are the ones are the reflective bodies close enough for us to see, which are the planets, mm. and they drift in a different orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, plankton, planets, same thing, uh, and it has this interesting, like, well, does that mean they have more agency against? The, the vast backdrop, or are they helpless yeah. and they're just drifting? And what does that say for agency? Uh, that's such a good question. Right. What is freedom? What is freedom? And is it a good thing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's maybe a tangent. Relatable, but yeah, mostly tangential. So, so there's the hopeful side. I'm trying to bring us back to that question because I was talking about Voyager. What mm-hmm. counts as sentient? Um, we put a a, a record, uh, a, like a golden vinyl record. It wasn't vinyl because they needed it to survive in space, so they literally made it out of plate gold because um, it's a non-reactive metal. So they put this, like, full-size phonograph, like, music record, that, that thing, mm-hmm. um, on the side of the spaceship, and they encoded stuff, a, a communication, to whatever sentient life might be able to find it. And theoretically, a more universally access- Decode accessible it, right. code. So, exactly. What the, how do you communicate with something that, like... So they assumed that if they could find it, that they would be... And so they looked for what's the, what's the like, easiest thing. And that was math and science. They, mm. So human scientists determined math and science to be universal. Mm. And they went to the simplest thing they could. So they encoded <clears throat> all of the information on the disk. Some of it is drawings. Like they, they put the, the picture of Adam, the man from Da Vinci, mm. uh, as like, this is what we look like. Um, what else is on there? There's, there's a little symbol with lines and dots that, tr- that trace an astronomical unit or like the unit between Proxima Centauri and our sun to show kind of like we know where we are in the cosmos. So half of it is just trying is us trying to prove to whoever might find this that we are smart <laughs> or or sentient or intelligent. That but sounds just, like a major insecurity <laughs> complex. It's but, like species you don't even know exist, you're still worried about them not thinking you're smart. <laughs> after after they like pry this thing off of a spaceship, mm-hmm. right? Like I don't know what species could look at a spaceship and be like, "Oh, this is Made, but I mean, almost like watchmaker theology, right? Mm, like mm-hmm. someone had to make this thing. Um, but they encoded everything based on the frequency of like 
the proton vibrations in a hydrogen atom or something like that. Like the easiest atom is a proton with an electron circling, mm-hmm. right? And so they, they just tried to show a bunch of things of like, and they, they use prime numbers and the Fibonacci sequence and all of these things to be like, here is, like, we know things. This is how we see things. And then they tried to communicate, like, coded messages. So th- these are assumptions of what counts as, like, sentience. On the other hand, um, like, how... I don't know, like emotions and and thinking about like what a cow might feel or Mm -hmm. like, does that count as sentient in, in a sort of way? Like, I don't know. What if, what if we find a species that is sentient, right? Like does it, does a, does a chimpanzee or an elephant or a dolphin, like things that we have called relatively intelligent Mm -hmm. by our standards, um, like if we found an alien of that level of intelligence, w- would we call it sentient? Or if we found a species with like a level of equivalent human intelligence to like a seven-year-old, mm-hmm. right? But they're like Einstein or Da Vinci or whoever was at our like seven-year-old level. Yeah. Like what are the dynamics that would happen between species interactions? Or the other way around. What if like our smartest people are the equivalent of like a toddler or something of some other species. But because of the language barriers, we would have no way of necessarily knowing. So our immediate... Well, I mean, I can communicate with a seven-year-old. Sure, I, I guess maybe I meant in terms of animals. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that if you saw a dolphin versus you see now an alien, the difference in your mindset is going to be you're coming from a different frame of reference and therefore mm. I'm not immediately subjugating you to that um, inferior Mm. Mm -hmm. status of animal in my mind. Right. If we found... So you could be the exact same dolphin who looks a little different, you know, has your own little... (laughs) Or whatever the dolphins... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But we would call them a sentient being. Probably. On another planet. Until we had reason to think otherwise. Yeah, maybe. Or reason to exploit them for some reason. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then so what does that say about our treatment of... Of animals. Of animals, of of earth creation. I almost said creation as like a universal, but mm. um, of earth creation or of ourselves. Yeah. And what does that mean? And even you said astrotomy, astrotomy, um, the belief in the... Astrolatry, astrolatry. Ast- like astrolatry. I- like idolatry except astrolatry. Oh, okay, astrolatry. Um, yeah, to consider the deity of planets. You know... There is certainly power in planets. Right. I mean, Jupiter rules this solar system. Yeah. <laughs> because of its gravitational pull. Yeah. And exactly. That by no other forces, gravity is still power mm-hmm. and is still a way of expressing like influence, power. maybe? Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm even thinking about life on this planet and how it depends on the rivers and mm. the seas and the rains. Um, you And in indigenous wisdom, those are beings. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they will have um, stories that are attached to that being. Right, sometimes to, wiser beings. To give some kind of, um, I want to say anthropomorphic mm. interpretation for, presumably for our 
understanding and relate and ability to relate to them. Yeah. Um, which in itself is reducing all of what that being could be. But the intent is to communicate it as a being, right? Right. Um, and often a spiritual being, a deity. Mm-hmm. So thinking that way of planets too. You know, Hania, my twin sister, she had this idea, which I really appreciate about astrology, which in the past I've had a hard time with, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm thinking mostly in terms of like New York Times, it's got your <laughs> like six to eight range. It's never below six. It's never above an eight. <laughs> Everyone's day is always going to be a six to eight. Um, but I recognize that the newspapers is a different thing. Um, but yeah, that idea of significance being placed in the stars alignments. Mm-hmm. And she's like, why couldn't God use the stars alignment to have some kind of influence in our reality? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I was just, I was just rereading Genesis, Genesis one fourteen. God said, let there be lights in the vault of heaven to divide the day from the night mm-hmm. and let them indicate festivals, days and years. Mm-hmm. Let them be lights in the vaults of heaven to shine on the earth. And so it was. God made two great lights, one to govern the light, or the greater light to govern the day, and the smaller to govern the night and the stars. God set them in the vault of heaven to shine on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. Evening came, morning came, the fourth day. So there's actually a lot of language in there about Governing, yeah, which is a thing that is given to humans mm-hmm. as part of um, right one twenty six. Uh, let us make mankind in our own image or humankind in the likeness of ourselves, and let them and therefore let them be masters of fish, sea, birds, heaven, uh, birds of heaven, cattle, all the wild animals and creatures. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing associated with the image of God is ruling creation on this planet, plants and animals usually. Um, but before that, the the task of governing of that same that same impetus is given to planets, mm-hmm. right? And it says, um, uh, oh, and these are dividing. The day and the night, which previously is a thing that God did. God divided the day from the night. Um, it also says, uh, and let them indicate festivals, days, and years. Right. So you could read that as benignly as calendar, or yeah. you could read that a little bit more involved as having significant al- uh, meaning and alignment. Yeah. Um, we do know that um, planets produce a, I mean, even... Uh, empty planets, as in empty of, of life, produce uh, radio waves and signals and things. Mm-hmm. So if you put a, tele- or a radio telescope to Jupiter, it'll sound like something. Help, help, help. <laughs> we could, that would be terrifying. <laughs> like, like Pluto sounds like something, and it sounds different from Venus, and it sounds different from, from Jupiter, and it sounds different from Uranus. So what do we do with that? Mm. Maybe they're singing. I mean, God's and song. this is Gustav Holst's planets uh, or the music of the spheres. Mm-hmm. Oh God, beyond all praising, da 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 
da, 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 da. or even the Star Wars Imperial March da, 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 is based off of Gustav Holst's uh, Mars, mm. right? This this war march. Um, so the sound of the spheres, and it, I mean honestly, you're you're wearing this shirt again uh, that has the the chicken with an egg, a sankofa. Uh, yeah, looking back, uh, facing forward. Um, taking care of an egg, and it's got these like concentric circles, and that's one of the views of what like the heavens looked like is Earth at the center and all of these spheres of influence mm-hmm. uh, that were ruled by different characterized beings, if not deities. We still have that circular aspect in terms of understanding orbits. Like if you see an orbital plane drawn out, you'll see like the the line that is associated with the orbit of a planet. Right. Um, we don't have the Earth at the center anymore, but yeah, there still is that sense of tears. Yeah, were you looking something up? Yeah, so in Genesis one, we do have this chiasm where we are separating that which is to be ruled with the rulers. So you have the the separation of the heavens mm-hmm. and the earth. Mm-hmm. That's one, and then we have uh, the waters separated, so the sky and the the seas, the ocean, and then on well, the earth sky. The Earth, Sky, Sea, or the, like, planetary... Uh, never mind. <laughs> I think the scale could be... The scale kind of goes big to small, right? Big to small, yeah. So the separation of the light and the darkness. Except that the stars then jump up and they're big and weird. And they're outside Earth. By our understanding, unless it's the holes in the... Okay. Well, you, you no, no, so, so it, <laughs> it starts with these, these three separations. We have um, the heavens from the Earth... And then we have the waters being mm-hmm. separated of the of the sky and of the seas, and then we have uh, the land, dry land, separated from the waters. Mm-hmm. And so, in these ways, you you're right; it's moving inward, big to small. But then we have starting over big. We have the governors. Mm. So the chiasm goes three, two, one, three, two, one, or the beings, the livers. The beings, exactly. So the beings of the firmament of heaven, or the, or the, um, of the celestial right space. You know, these are the planets. These are the, the greater and lesser yeah. light. Yeah, and then you have the creatures of the sea, which govern the sea, and then the birds, which govern the sea, the the water of the air. Right. So sky. smaller fields of or spheres of influence. And then you have all the creepy crawlies and everything, mm. and the humans, who are so we're last. We we're are tiny. Less. Yeah, we're tiny, which is such a fascinating way to interpret this scripture, which I think is worth leaning into more. But that's a little bit of a tangent from <laughs> where we're going. But I do think that idea of yeah. um, recognizing the beings and that the planets themselves and the stars are considered beings. Yeah. One hard thing about that is uh, that it seems like in comparative mythologies to look at other... Uh, one of the things that it seemed like the the early Jewish or proto-Jewish um, authors were doing in this, or storytellers even, were doing in this story, was to, because mo- th- this is monotheistic uh, mm. as opposed to polytheistic, and one of the easiest ways to go polytheistic is to assign spiritual power to things yeah. like planets, mm-hmm. um, to the stars, and I mean, a- almost a form of animism, um, and Judaism directly rejects that by saying 
it's just a thing in the sky that is certainly under God. Mm-hmm. That that it's not a being in itself that did any creative power. Yeah. Um, you know, we usually have like a sun god and a moon goddess and and this one just says lights. Mm-hmm. And to some extent it's the Jewish tradition is de emphasizing the power. So I don't know. It's interesting that you could take it both ways. Well, I think with that idea of a being, it is not drawing this godly distinction. It's not saying this is a new god in the same way that we're not a new god. You know, that in some ways, the way that God is Lord over all, even as beings are assigned to their place and assigned to govern. Um, and more than anything, I think this governance, we talked about the, the power of gravity, mm. and that that is a governance. And yet at the same time, it is a harmony. It is a relationship where the planets are orbiting around the sun, mm. you know, and the solar sister system orbiting within the galaxy and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, this is a dance. And as the dance keeps going... A polychoretic dance? Hmm. Polyperichoretic? <laughs> um, but, it, but it's holding all things in, in harmony together. It's yeah. a relationship. Yeah. And so when we think then of our governance and we say, no, 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 unlike everyone else, we're going to break the rules of the dance and we're going to do our own thing. And we see the chaos that ensues and we think, what? <laughs> oh, this is just the result of sin. It's like, well, you're not doing the dance. Yeah, and that gets into, like, sand and the problem of evil and the whole, like, Eru Iluvatar, Melkor, discordance. Which, yeah, I, anything, which is beautiful. Um, there was you a, hear what I'm, sa- what I'm saying, I do, though, in that? I yeah. do, I do. Um, one, I don't know if this is a counterpoint or, or something just in conversation with it, but the only reason we have apparent harmony in the solar system now is because we went through all of the chaos, the tohu obohu, maybe, of an accretion disk. Mm. Um, right. So when a star explodes, it just like vomits out all its guts and that stuff still has so much like energy and mass and gravity and things that something starts to coalesce. And if there's enough mass and all the conditions are right, you get a star at the center, but you get all of the, the star juice, all of the guts, um, the heavier elements. And, and this is, you know, actually based on gravity is why we have rocky planets on the interior and gaseous like gas giants on the exterior planets mm. and why the asteroid belt is where it is like it's all just frequencies of and vibrations of which sounds woo woo but it it's just frequencies and vibrations of gravity um mm. and and the strength of solar wind to blow away atmospheric things anyway the composition of earth in its Goldilocks zone, quote mm-hmm. unquote, where it's not too hot, not too cold, um, and has all of the right elements for life and carbon and all of these things, mm-hmm. only came from the chaos of planetary bodies smashing into each other in the early, early, early stages mm-hmm. of this like gravitational disk of mass, right? And and the powers, the gravitational centers cleared an aisle essentially of gravitational influence. And sometimes you capture things like moons. And sometimes the moon smashes into you because it's actually unstable, not stable. Yeah, that is such an interesting question too to think about the, what we consider now to be stable or the dance that I was just describing. Right. How stable is it in fact? Well, currently it's stable only because I think it's tested by billions of years of, of like now harmony. But on a bigger scale, you know, if, if our scale becomes trillions or quadrillions of years, you know, in a blip, are we going to smash into another galaxy? Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll smash into the Andromeda galaxy in less than a billion years. 
And in that, when that happens, is our beautiful dance going to be interrupted? Here's the issue: we've modeled what this what this crash is going to look like, and here's the thing: we sometimes forget, right? Like, so we watched Dune recently, <laughs> and um, there's this spacing guild, right? And they need spice to like travel between the stars because otherwise, um, and and Frank Herbert talked about it as like they would. I don't know. Well, maybe he clarified this, but we think of like, you know. Even Han Solo in Star Wars was like, I got to calculate this jump speed light or we could end up in an asteroid field or like Mm -hmm. smashing into a star or something. It's like, no. The true risk in space navigation is offshooting your target by a millionth of a degree and ending up so freaking far away from where you were because space is so dang empty, Mm -hmm. right? When the Andromeda galaxy, which is bigger than the Milky Way, crashes into the Milky Way, we'll pass through each other other like air right because there are actually so few stars what will get weird is gravity um and this is where like dark matter gets in and it's like the dark matter is what is going to mess with us if we smash in so yeah it could it could mess with things Hmm. um but like pluto's not about to fall out of orbit or something but neptune is like twisted on its side it's rolling through the because of some impact a long 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 time ago um you know the or the orbits even the fact that we have seasons is because something big hit us a long time ago and we're til- we're tilted on our axis by 22 degrees or so mm-hmm. right so like can we look at creation and say this is intentional or can we look at creation and just say this is the way that it is now and and, and, and still find beauty in that that too but also do we have any choice right one of the one of the like counter examples so one thing that scientists or that um Christians like to do is to say, look at how like delicate the balance of all of these things is. Like if the speed of light were just a fraction slower or if gravity were a tiny bit stronger Mm -hmm. or any of the fundamental forces of the universe were different, you know, if we weren't in the Goldilocks zone Mm -hmm. of the habitable zone of our planet, you know, some, I I heard a thing um, trying to argue for intelligent design that said like, oh, if the earth were like, you know, 12 feet closer to the sun, we'd roast. It's like, that's, that's BS. We, we, we shift in um, apogee and perigee, you know, the farthest we are away from the sun and the closest we are to the sun uh, by by kilometers each year. Um, and that also... And, and then there's Milankovitch cycles of, like, the wobble of the magnetic rotation of things. Like, it's not as... It's not, not as, as fragile. precise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not as, not as fragile. Um, but some things are, are that fragile. And the only reason life could exist is because they were that way but but instead of saying look how unlikely this is if you take a hundred dice and they all end up being ones Mm -hmm. or a million dice and they all end up being ones that's the statistics we're looking at and some people are like that number is so infinitesimally small that at that point you might as well believe in god but that's a weird logic you have a thought well i was just going to say or you say that however many dice we rolled and whatever statistical improbability is that then when you say well there have to be at least that many universes then Sure, <laughs> multiverse theory. And multiverse theory comes out of thoughts like that, but also dimensional uh, mm-hmm. questions, um, which is fun that I don't know enough about. Um, or the other way to think about this statistically is to say, we're not rolling 100,000 dice. We are looking at 100,000 dice that have been rolled. And they all happen to, they all happen to be ones. But we're looking at the only extant example of this happening. So we can't actually say whether or not it's an unlikely thing or a likely thing. 
Because maybe they're not actually dice? Um, or that they're weighted or something? Maybe, or that it doesn't matter how rare it is because we are in the example where it did happen. So we don't know how many times it didn't happen. Sure, yeah. I'm not sure exactly how to like wrap up that thought. Um, makes more sense in my head than how I can explain it. Um, but it's like survivor, survivor, uh, it's like skewing the data, um, based on survivor bias or something. Yeah. Survivor bias. What does it mean going back a little bit earlier when you're talking about all of this order coming out of chaos, you know, that God worked within the tohu abohu. I think this is an interesting question that tohu abohu that we, we had an episode on a while ago, mm-hmm. um, the chaos that preexisted the present order, according to Genesis one, mm-hmm. did that preexist God or was that somehow outside of God that God stepped into or did right. God create the chaos right. in order to create or how do we relate to that chaos? Ugh. I mean, chaos versus order, right? This is Dr. Reichel's class right now that mm-hmm. all of us in humanity wish that we were in <laughs> and the very privileged, predestined few um, <laughs> are in. But this question of, um, is chaos the natural state? And order is this like unique thing that that does or has to arise from it? Entropy would in seem order to suggest for it so. to be good. Or is it the other way around that 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 order is this like totalitarian state and and true freedom and liberation theologically and and otherwise come from the chaos? I mean, I found a lot come of that. from breaking the rules. Yeah, right. That is an interesting way to think about it. That freedom might be stepping away from the current structure, the current way of things, and if that way of things way of being is right. order, which in our small bubble seems to be, then it, mm-hmm. then we understand freedom to be, well, breaking the rules. If freedom is the chaos, yeah. you know, I'm free to uh, walk across the street as cars are driving by. Like I have that freedom, mm-hmm. you know, and that's chaos. Um, but if the bigger picture of all things is chaos, yeah, then maybe true freedom is being able to have order which right. is such a wild thought because in our small little bubble, we think about freedom in contrast to st- structure and order as opposed to in contrast to chaos. Yeah, I mean, depending on, on views of it, but yeah. Um, That's fascinating. There's, a, there's ideas like we don't actually know whether or not the universe is, is, has an edge, whether or not it's infinite. Some hmm. of the rate of expansion, so the observable universe, you know, we, we, have, we have data to, to think about... Um, we have data to think about the possibility of the universe being, uh, I mean, spatially, this is, this is the part of the Kalam argument that we talked about a while ago of, of ontology of how of how we think or how we know the universe had to have a beginning and therefore had to have a creator, right? Because um, something that is infinite maybe didn't ever have to actually have a beginning. Sure. Um, so are we just a... I mean, I, I think I've said this before. What what if, like, all of we're... So entropy, right? This amount of chaos. If I, if I like, 
slam my hand through a room that ha- is full of smoke, I'm going to create higher moments, small localized pools of lower entropy, less chaos, a little bit more structure. Mm. I'm going to create a division. I'm going to create a vacuum where suddenly there's there's no smoke. I'm going to create these like small whirlpools that are like very organized things. Yeah. Right. We think of a God that is intentional and, and loving and whatever. But what if, you know, who, who was it who says like, what if we're just a divine fart? <laughs> um, like God is powerful enough that God could have just, you know, belched us into existence accidentally. It's, it's, it's a silly theology in terms of Christian idea. And the image is silly, certainly. And I guess what it comes down to is the question of the relationship between right. the infin- infinite and the finite. Right. You know, if we are, uh, you know, speck on God's foot. What then does God, is God somehow bound by the finite in that regard? You know, like I think there needs to be some distinction between the finite and the infinite that the idea of us being just a belch or some, you know, waste puts us in relationship to the infinite in a way that I actually think limits the infinite. Yeah, possibly. That's one of the... And that's where things get to Christology. Um, you know, we have in some ways captured God or God has captured God's self in some finite thing, which mm-hmm. is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would, we, that would seem intentional and therefore loving, I imagine. Um, and that has a whole kind of interesting relationship to it. But if the universe is truly infinite, then then there may not need to be any sort of agentive creator or anything. Um, like we could just be a small localized bubble of low entropy of structure that is doomed to fizzle out mm-hmm. without other intervention. I had a random thought. Can I share mm-hmm. it? It's not even related, but... <laughs> Thinking about time and technology and Christ, what if Christ first came today and instead of some crucifixion, we cryogenically froze him? (laughs) And so there would be no possibility for resurrection because he would never die. He would never have left. Yeah, not just in bodily form, but that he never would have died. Hmm. Just to th- just throwing that out there. We don't have yeah. to talk about that. I just <laughs> that's a very interesting thought. It it kind of begs the question of of God's level of how much can we trap God? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Can we do something to foil God's plans? Would God have to like supernaturally against nature parafusis? Mm-hmm construct some like power outage sure sure so that the the christicle freezes <laughs> the or Christ-sicle. so thaws uh thaws and can do whatever right like <laughs> i'm I glad you that. enjoyed that so this was the question in dr bowen's new testament class we brought in uh dr kaita this mm-hmm. this physicist uh who and someone asked this question about the arrow of time and entropy and things um that was kind of fascinating of Will God have to input energy 
to mm. the system. Yeah, yeah. Presumably from outside because of the law of uh, conservation of energy. And In order to keep it going? The second law of thermodynamics and stuff. Or to reverse it or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like the uh, a 12-gated golden mountain city descending from the sky well, sounding a little chaotic, is actually a highly structured, yeah. a very low entropy thing. Mm-hmm. And where that energy to form that has to come from somewhere, is God going to just like input that much extra energy and mass and, and E equals MC squared and all of that into the universe at the end of time? And then is that just going to have to fade away? You know, do, what do we do? Is it age to age? Is God going to just reverse mm-hmm. the direction of entropy? And what does that mean for time? Like... Yeah. Ah. The present way of thinking of things in the universal expansion that all planetary bodies, celestial beings are flying away from each other. And and at an increasing rate. So at some point, you know, there'll I, be heat death. No, well, this is depending on the speed of expansion. If the mm-hmm. speed of expansion remains constant, then we'll get the heat death. Um, because essentially all energy will eventually leave us into low level heat that is unusable. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so the sun will die out. The, the cores of planets will cool and there'll just be no sources of energy because, but, but like, so if I, if I like clap or, or dribble a basketball, like the reason that a basketball slows down, if I just drop it is because of uh, friction. And essentially, friction is the the medium of entropy happening, Mm -hmm. right? The ball's movement is hindered by hitting particles of the air. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's expanded. It's expended as sound, and both of those are useless forms of energies. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't make them do any work. And even if somehow we found a way to use that, it's still going to leave us. All that energy is just like flying out. So. Yeah, and we need to be cautious about what we mean by leave us because I use the word dissipate because mm-hmm. um, it technically doesn't go anywhere. It just it dissipates. It it dissolves into such low-level, like spread out ways that we can't harness it anymore. Or so like, all that energy is still all around us? Yes. There is a finite amount of energy. Mm-hmm. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. Mm-hmm. So me, like... Putting the, like me eating something, I mean, how far back do you, can we go, right? Like, okay, so let's say the sun grows a plant, which which I eat to get energy, and so my hand moves a, a ball, which then makes noise and stops moving by friction. Mm-hmm. The energy that came through cycles from the sun was used at various points in its life, in its lifetime. To do something. Mm-hmm. It was to, to move a ball. And now that same energy exists. It's just super spread out across the entire room that I'm in, across the entire planet that I'm in. Eventually, it just dissipates out across all of space and is unusable. That's what heat death means. But we're also expending energy, right? Like the planet is giving off heat. Our core is super hot. It's That heat is going through the thermal layers, the crust, to us. Yes. That theoretically, with enough time, that energy would all leave and until it's all balanced, all constant. Right. Right. So right now, what entropy is, is the split between where some things are highly concentrated mm-hmm. and some things are lower concentrated. It's like osmosis. Or did... Exactly. 
dissipation. Um, uh, yeah, osmosis or um, yeah, there's there, a D word. There then. is a D word there. <laughs> um, density dispersion or something, right? Like high pressure to low pressure, mm-hmm. like a wind system, mm-hmm. um, right? If you just dump a whole bunch of particles in the atmosphere of wind, like diffusion that's diffusion diffusion is gonna and diffusion is like is the the tangible physical example of what heat does Mm -hmm. Uh, it diffuses and so then you like your cup of tea um pouring milk in a cup of tea Mm -hmm. and swirling it you're never gonna get it like you're never suddenly gonna get all of your milk particles on one side of the cup You'd be kind of freaked out if that happened. It's technically possible. <laughs> like what? Right? And this gets to like quantum stuff, and and mm. I mean, there's so much to talk about. We might have to do a part two on this. I think we might. So it's statistically possible, right? This is one of the things of quantum physics. It's statistically possible for like my hand to completely pass through this table, mm-hmm. all of the atom, like like um, like the Andromeda galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Most of physical matter is actually made up of empty space, the space between the electrons and the neutrons, and because and the yeah neutrons and protons. So is that space truly empty? I mean, we talk about the universe and having dark matter filling it, but so we still the... don't know what the scale of dark matter is. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know if there is dark matter in this room, or if it exists on a large scale between planets or stars. We don't know if it exists on the tiniest, tiniest scale as in somehow in the space of uh, between or, atoms yeah, yeah. Um, or between even the electron. Um, so, I mean, ugh, this is so quantum physics is the other side of things where it's like, is it empty? No, there's a probability of it being empty. Mm. One of the reasons why, why I don't think, and I'm not 100% sure, I don't think dark matter can exist between like an electron and a neutron because in the current standard model of physics, things are broken down between energies and particles. And energy energies need fields, which I think are are generated by particles. So I mm. think space, actually, mass, matter, space, is the fundamental like formation of things. Except E equals MC squared means that all like matter is just a form of congealed energy. So and it really everything is energy. Um, but there's that difference between a field, uh, maybe this is the trinity of physics, that mm. that we have fields, the Holy Spirit, which are propagated by matter, which is congealed energy, and fields are the medium through which energy. So modalism. Modalism, Patrick. Which, when Dr. President Barnes talked about modalism today, I was like, that's partialism you're talking about. <laughs> I, uh, I skipped chapel to, oh, okay. Okay. Never to mind. research part of this. Um, I was like, don't you go dragging modalism down with you. <laughs> I was like, that is partialism you were talking about. Um, Patrick. So, yeah, statistically, my hand could pass through this table mm-hmm. because it's possible for all of the atoms of the table and all of the atoms of my hand to perfectly align. It's just statistically not, it's such a low number that it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it does happen on the tiniest levels, um, and this is why it takes so long for black holes to evaporate. Right, so on the edge of the event horizon, right, mm-hmm. you can think of it as like a, a slip and slide that's over the top of a hill. And if you are, if you are on one side of the slip and slide, you're gonna go into the black hole. And if you're on the other side of the slip and slide, if you have enough energy, you could escape. Yeah. And so, um, because of quantum physics, there's matter and antimatter particles that, for some reason, uh, pop into existence and annihilate each other. Mm-hmm. Right, because some, yeah. Matter and antimatter of the same form can't exist in the same place. 
this asks the question of whether or not there's anti-time um, or anti-energy. Mm. Um, but anyway, so you get matter and antimatter that pop in right along this horizon. And usually, if it's anywhere else, it will pop into existence and immediately annihilate because of conservation of mass and energy. But black holes or the quantum foam breaks the rules because at the at, right at the edge of the event horizon of a black hole, an antimatter particle or a particle can hop into existence, and then before they annihilate, one can get sucked into the black hole and the other one gets free. Free. And so it loses. And Smithers free. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but, 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 so then one but that, ener- that, that mass or that energy or whatever has to come from something and so it comes from the black hole itself which is weird and so the black hole is evaporating is what it's called hmm. and the, it evaporates at different speeds based on its radius and stuff but um, is there any way to prove this quantum physics the presentation of antimatter and matter that pop up and immediately annihilate each other well I think it has been proven um, that's what, I mean, this is one of the wild things. Um, uh, the, like the Large Hadron Collider and all of these particle accelerators are trying to like smash particles together at really high energies to like form these particles. And, and I think they've made antimatter. Hmm. Um, they just need to keep it away from matter. Otherwise it explodes and annihilates and stuff. But how, how do you hold antimatter? In a field, in like a magnetic field. In an anti-field? It responds in a different way or oppositely, I think, to regular matter. So I think you could hold a positron, which is um, the antimatter equivalent of an electron. Electrons have negative charge and a certain spin. Um, And a positron is an antimatter equivalent of an electron. So as long as you keep a positron away from an electron and other matter. Um, because a positron has a positive charge, you can keep it in a negative field. So do they ever... Is the is there any statistical possibility that they would appear and fling from each other such that they don't immediately annihilate without the presence of a black hole? If you had a strong enough energy field, you might be able to... I'm just wondering about the existence. That might break physics right, in terms of making more. <laughs> well, I mean, I matter. expressed this idea to you earlier about how the universe may have, this was years ago, I think, um, the universe may have come to be as um, the origin of matter, the origin of energy coming from this massive quantum moment where it appeared and then didn't immediately annihilate itself. So the idea of something coming from nothing is like, well, there is the reverse of that something that together would be nothing right? that came into existence at the same time. So I think that's actually somewhat viable. Um, the reason why we don't have any... So I think one of the main hypotheses here is that the reason that the universe is made of matter is because if and when something like that happened there happened to be this much as much matter is in the universe this much more matter than antimatter. So we only have the net extra matter and as much antimatter as existed, that much matter also annihilated. So it doesn't create the exact opposite of itself? 
I mean, th- that's the issue. Is like it would had it would have to have created more matter than antimatter. However, yeah, by even just a small amount. Yeah. Um, or maybe a large amount, but who knows? I mean, small in its scale, probably, but still, even that. How do we is, know, right? Like, <laughs> and and how would that even come to be? But anyway, let's tie it back to theology. <laughs> oh yeah, that thing. Well, I mean, so here's the thing: is that we we talk a lot of this is about um, the beginning of things, mm-hmm. and whether it's evolution or Big Bang or other things, um, that doesn't sometimes that aligns with how people can read the Bible. Um, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and there's a lot of contention over that, but there's just as much contention over the other end of time, right? Mm. What what the end of things is going to look like. And I think we've talked a lot about that a little already in terms of heat death or the big rip or whatever. So the big rip is the other side where if, if expansion and based on the amount of dark matter is different, then things might start accelerating so quickly that at some point everything is going to be ripped apart from even like subatomic particles are going to be ripped apart from each other faster than the speed of light, which mm. would overcome the strong and weak nuclear forces and all of that stuff. So, like, yeah. what does that mean in terms of God's plan for the universe? Will God have to intervene and step in so that doesn't happen? Or is that God's plan? It doesn't seem like it based on... Total annihilation. Yeah, or, I mean, escapism. Right? Are we going to live on some spiritual plane that isn't bound by matter? But then mm-hmm. what do we do with physicality and Christ's body and all of these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, tying this to a question that you asked at the beginning, which we haven't gotten to yet, and maybe you can let me know if you don't want to draw it up now, but if Christ comes back in 10,000 years or rather even 10 million years, if somehow we're still around, mm-hmm. what if we're not human anymore? Right. What does it mean to be human? Right. There's a couple of different levels of this, right? So let's say let's say Christ doesn't come back for another 500 years. Maybe we've uh, bit the bullet from a nuclear um, apocalypse. <laughs> you know, maybe we've destroyed ourselves. Maybe there are no humans left. Mm-hmm. Right. This this destruction method of summoning the end of time. Or yeah, exactly. Could we summon Christ's return by threatening to blow everything up? Or, or maybe <laughs> doing it and having just, like, one human left or something. I don't know. Well, no, I'm even thinking, like, you set off this code. You click the you, button. You, you click the button, and it's, like, a minute left, you know? Yeah. And, and you leave where you literally have no possibility of shutting this down anymore. Right, and you know that everyone will die. Yeah. Yeah. Would that force Christ to return? Force Christ's hand. Right. So there's, there's one side of things. Checkmate. The other side of things is what if we have the technology to destroy the Earth, but there's people left on Mars, mm-hmm. right? Is the Earth necessary? A new heaven and a new Mars. Right. You know, what does it mean for Christ to descend from the clouds? Which clouds? <laughs> Presumably you know, to Jerusalem, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason mm-hmm. why there's a, whole, there's a whole cemetery right outside the east gate of Jerusalem because yeah. that's where Christ will return. As they believe, yeah. Yeah. Um, and if we've destroyed that, like if we have literally blown up the planet, right? So there's the us side of things, there's the planet side of things. And then there's the, you know, let's say maybe Earth exists, maybe it doesn't, I don't know if it matters um, at this level, but maybe it's 10,000 years from now and we're on a bunch of different planets, right? Dune Dune style. Mm-hmm. That's about 20,000 years in our future. Yeah. Um, let's go even beyond that. Let's go 10 million years in the future. And to your point, what if we're no longer human? And And by that, I mean, 
our genetic code Genetically, has changed right. we so are much now, that yeah. we can no longer actually be called human. Um, well, or, and maybe there are whatever the original branch might be, but there's like whatever branches uh, or directions of humanity can't interbreed with each other. Sure. Like that's one of the definitions of species. Yeah, or yeah, so we've differentiated and made two separate species. Or 50 different species or sure. whatever. I mean, even thinking too of like, what does it mean to be human? You have Homo sapiens who was interbreeding with Neanderthal. And some others maybe. And some others. Um, well, have we changed humanity? Is it still okay? Was it not human before now, but now we found the perfect recipe? Well, since when? Since Adam and Eve, quote unquote, or since Jesus, or exactly, yeah. When when does it start counting? Yeah, you asked me a question the other day of of if there's any like evolutionary changes that might happen in humanity, and I don't know the answer to that. We don't. We as Homo sapiens don't really operate on the idea of survival of the fittest anymore in terms of how health or uh, genetic advantage might lead to having more babies. But if we started interstellar travel and then you'd get species came drift. to shove, yeah, then you'd get species drift, mm-hmm. and then just a gene pool would would shift by reaction to new stimuli, uh, new environments. Yeah, I mean, even things as simple as gravity is going to change your genetic makeup eventually, eventually. Yeah, um, and or you know, this this might be part of astrotheology. I don't think astrotheology specifically extends to, um. Robots or cyborg, uh, maybe or or like genetic manipulation and things, mm. right? Like CRISPR. Yeah, we can you imagine. Yeah, we could probably genetically modify ourselves to an extent accidentally where we are now sterile. You know, we we mess with right. the wrong genes, right? And suddenly, now all human beings have to be cultivated in a lab because we are physically impo- unable to do that. It's possible. Yeah. You know, and what point then if, if Jesus returns, not through the clouds, but through a human womb, that, you know, wouldn't be able to take place. Well, how, how human could Jesus be? Yeah. Just a thought, just a thought. Here comes a thought. I mean, so, technically it doesn't say, does it ever say the second coming or just the, the return, the coming? Because what if there is a middle ground? Like, what if Christ came back again before the... Last coming, before the eschaton. Yeah, I mean that gets to all sorts of ideas of of pre-incarnation um, on Earth or beyond it, right? Jesus's pre-incarnated body hanging around in heaven, or um, Melchizedek and and pre-revelations of Christ. Yeah, maybe maybe there's Mezzo, uh, like post Yeshua, but pre ultimate. Revelation returns. Hmm. Yeah. And what does that mean for our us being the body of Christ? So so those are some uh, thoughts in terms of I'm trying to think. You know, there there's kind of the question, and maybe we can I need to take some notes and, and record this next time, but where does free will come from? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at a purely causal materialistic uh, definition of the universe, there's actually no difference between forward time and backward time. Mm. It's all based on uh, the the, me- the mechanics and movements. It's of a dimension. It's cause harmless. and effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so cause and effect, you you can link one to one to one to one to one going forward or backward. And you're saying down to the level of biochemistry. Yeah, 
that is yeah a right. very secular way to approach will and and so then there's no there's no causality and therefore there's no will there's no deviating from the the list of or the the sequence of dominoes that are just mm-hmm. falling it would require a separate ingredient like a, a human soul being something that's spiritual and not physical which somehow and what do you do again with that with that with that energy where does that energy come from it's interesting that you say energy because energy is still on a physical level it it is but so this oh okay there's there's maybe one or two things that I wanted to to touch on at the end of this um like is it possible so like so if I'm if I'm heating up a cup of tea and I put it in the microwave mm-hmm. or no let's let's try a fridge I don't know which You're yeah heating it up in the fridge he, or whatever cool, <laughs> in the fridge heating it up in the microwave I don't know which direction is doing more entropy work mm. um I think at that that extent, actually cooling something down to absolute zero might also be a deviate a, a low deviation of entropy, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, it takes more energy, right? If you try to cool your uh, room down on a hot day by opening the fridge, the back of the fridge has to do more work than the front of the fridge can cool down. So you're actually going to heat up your room. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the way that one kind of works. But does will so uh, let me finish the first quantum will thought, quantum ethics, of potentially the randomness, the chaos on that quantum level, which is unpredictable, that might propagate uh, results widely enough in a macro scale to account for what it means for us to have free will. If you're still wanting to talk about it in terms of material reality, I think, as opposed to the intersection of a reality that is not physical. But th- this is so. This is the second thing: is what is the spirituality? What, if any, is the spirituality of of quantum reality? Right? We call it random, but mm. maybe maybe it's not. It's just non-detectable. Maybe it's Kairos. Maybe it's Kairos. Um, so, Ooh, that's... I, I remember. <laughs> <yeah, laughs> I was like, I, I'm gonna have to think about that one. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I remember the question that I put stars by um, during the physics uh... lecture. I also like the idea of like ending a part one with a lot of questions being like, uh-huh, yeah, but uh-huh. I think, I think this is where I might want to, we can, we can end it with questions, but this I do want to get to, um, what is the entropic cost of will? The physics cost of heating something up or cooling it down is heat, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and because of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, there's nothing we can do that will actually decrease entropy more than it increases it. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's always a net loss of work and entropy and all these things, mm-hmm. and so 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 we're fighting. Luckily, like the Earth is surrounded by a vacuum, and heat doesn't transmit very well through vacuums. So so we have a long time, right? The heat death of the universe isn't going to happen. You know, the the last <laughs> the last black hole isn't going to evaporate, and the last proton uh, star and like super compact white dwarf and stuff they're they're not gonna they're not gonna stop running the last red dwarf isn't gonna you know shut down its fusion engines so to speak and the last particles aren't gonna quantum tunnel into iron for like trillion as many cookies as we have going on in the whatever <laughs> like that many times that many yeah uh-huh. that like quint- quintessillion times quintessillion years like hundreds and hundreds of zeros mm-hmm. that's how much time the universe has until until the heat death so pres- presumably other problems are going to go awry before that happens in terms of our survival. 
Sure. Yes. No, no, no. We, like, <laughs> We're not going to be around until he death. Yeah, no, this is Kurzgesagt level of like, in, let's say, another 12 billion years, when, when there's just not enough energy for a star, when a, when a star explodes in a kilonova, that's a huge star that just exploded. All of the stars that come from that star have to be smaller than that one. Mm-hmm. And subsequently through generations and generations. So stars will get weaker and weaker throughout the time of the universe. And at some point we'll have only like black holes and small uh, red dwarfs and mm-hmm. proton stars and things. Um, and those can't restart new stars. They are sterile. But they last for freaking ever. Mm-hmm. So if we like build, you know, if you've got a proton star and we like construct a moon that orbits it in that star's Goldilocks zone, Humanity could survive on that for trillions of years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not really my question. My que- so that that's if we assume that we can't do anything that uh, will conserve our heat, right? This is all in pure in pure physics, but but what is the entropic efficacy of will, um, of prayer, maybe even? Can we? So I, I cannot. I cannot use my muscles to stir a cup of tea um, in a way that conserves entropy. But will, as a thing that do, that is very low energy cost, I think, unless unless me living costs more entropy than any amount of entropy entropy reduction I can do. I don't know if this is making sense. Gotta ask your mom that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, oh, that's a good point. How much? energy and investment does it take to make just a human anyway every time you phrase a question that way it always sounds like a joke in my mind oh, <laughs> like how many so-and-sos does it take to so-and-so so so the question is about will can we about 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 yeah about free will and and desire and impetus and spiritual efficacy so i say one thing um so my my older brother uh, and he's not the first one to think of this. There's like the the egg idea theologically that all of this creation is just a construct for us to us as humanity or maybe all of creation together, whatever, but usually so, slightly human centric to mature into God. Does that make yeah? Yes, um, it's circular. It is that that's the that's the full that's the that's the point. Is that it's circular? Well, um, in terms of a, like the flaw, this idea of circular logic is you can't use something to justify itself. Like if God created all these things that allow us to become the God who created all things, you know. The the egg example might be a little bit different because that hypothesizes other gods and we're just that the universe, as far as we, all of the mass and energy, like, like a chicken egg is cut off from the rest of its universe, mm-hmm. right? That hypothetically once we hatch out there's other things outside that but you're right um the the last episodes of star trek next generation spoilers um q this like omnipotent being identifies this thing this un- the spatial anomaly that is expanding backwards in time and it, it's causing problems and it expands just so that at the moment of when the gloop would have uh, the gloop on primordial earth would have glopped together to make life that the radiation from this anomaly stopped that and therefore stopped humanity so it had a real profound impact on the globe clubbing yep so this thing that happened in the future because of time and stuff affected what happened in the past and picard is able to like to some extent 
stop the destruction of humanity. The gloop gloppery? Yep. But in another way, cause humanity to to begin for the gloop to glop. Gloopifying. Gloopifying all of humanity into the glop which it now is. <laughs> so <laughs> I was trying so hard to you were and um, well, there's your problem. I know. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm trying to wrap this up quickly, but essentially it, it is a closed loop, mm. right? And, and that one is at least a closed loop on humanity, but, but my older brother Chris um, proposes, and he's not the only one to do so, a closed loop on all of time and entropy and whatever, that we might get advanced enough in our manipulation of, and, and this is a thing we can talk about next time in terms of um, levels of of advancements in civilization. Layers of wonder. <laughs> um, uh, Kardashev 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up to whatever God might be, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a 7. <laughs> uh, but usually it goes up to... God's a 10. Uh, usually up my to... Scale. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kardashev usually goes up to 4, I think. But um, So if we get advanced enough in our manipulation of, of, t- of gravity therefore of time, physics, all of these things, might humanity, like like humanity as currently being the only sentient thing that we know of, um, like like your brain named itself, right? The the human brain called the brain a brain, (laughs) right? Sure. And, And humanity to the cosmos or the universe is the same thing. Like we are the universe's own sentience. There may be other sentient beings out there, and they would just add to it as well. But so the 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 theory then here is that we are a self caused cause, whether we evolve or whatever into a high enough Kardashev uh, species, that we then have the capacity to play around with all of time and space, in the same way that like I can play around with some Plato or something. Yeah, I and mean, therefore we are God, and then blah blah blah. Well, one one issue there is um, we don't create ourselves. We create a subjective identity for ourselves, which is different. And I would want to draw the distinction in terms of how you've expanded out this argument that we being, in this example, the brain of the body that is the universe, do not then consequently create the universe. We we give the universe no, no, a certain no. identity that we... Um. But if we, we as part of the universe, we are the universe's own conscience or consciousness. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are the universe understanding itself or perceiving itself. Right? That doesn't automatically translate into our power to manipulate things. Mm-hmm. Right? But if we are able to, as Genesis says, harness, steward, govern, creation to the highest extent then we are manipulating things in a, in a good way. We're tactiling, we're moving, we're causing things. Right? If I if I can if I can make a wormhole using just neutrinos and quantum science and whatever, mm-hmm. if we get good enough at science or advanced enough at science to like manipulate these things, then we are causing the universe to change in terms of time and if we get good at that, then there's no real reason why we can't like jumpstart a star. And it and if we can jumpstart a star, we can do all, the, all like these things that, yeah, those those two ideas aren't necessarily linked. Okay. The brain naming itself doesn't mean that 
the brain has ultimate power over the body to do impossible things. Yes, or or that the brain doesn't create itself in that process. Right. Like that idea of the closed loop or the um, no, it's, circular logic. The, the closed loop isn't formed from that. The closed loop is formed from the potential of our advancement to manipulate the circumstances of the loop being closed, of of closing of us closing that loop. In the same way that as if we were to consider ourselves in this example, a brain who has a body, who calls ourselves the body. Sure. In the way that we being the conscience conscious of the universe would call ourselves the universe potentially. Yeah. Um that we can make a cyborg body for ourselves. We can fundamentally reconstruct the self that is us in the ways that we desire. We could also reconstruct the universe. Is it is that kind of what you're saying? Making stars, making controlling all elements of how the universe exists? The cyborg the cyborg example would be the step before the full closure. Okay. Right? Like remember Interstellar, more spoilers. I'll wrap this up quickly. <laughs> um right, like they figure out they like they go into the black hole, whatever his name is, and he realizes that because of the time bending of the black hole, he is the one who's like communicating the the gravity message to his young daughter. Which, I mean, we should just do an episode on paradoxes is really what we should do because I think this question of time bending is very, it's a paradoxical one. So just to, to wrap that up, the, the issue is an extension of that idea. Mm-hmm. That like at some point in the future when we have all of the, capacity to manipulate time and space we'll just go back to a time and start ourselves potentially to start our universe there was a time okay so all of that (laughs) depends on and this is my last thing okay all of that depends on whether or not the efficacy the entropic efficacy of uh will is lower than its cost right so here's the thing that i wrote uh, so Chris and others' ideas of the universe knowing itself through us and, uh, like us, the brain naming itself and becoming self-aware and therefore controlling itself, the whole universe is or will be alive. And through the development, and through development, through that Kardashev scaling, we may even be the god, little g or big g, I don't know, that is made perfect, in, as the Bible says. And is eventually the ultimate being who event, who can say, let there be light. Or to travel into time and by our very being and presence and love, if you see above, change reality and reconcile it to itself. What this depends on is this question that we'll, that we'll maybe end on. What is the speed of love? Or maybe, put less romantically and more specifically, the speed of thought. Not in milliseconds of neuron to muscle or vice versa, but the speed of our comprehension across the world or across the universe the speed of imagination the speed of intention the speed of prayer distance is no barrier and neither is time i can think about a distant star as it is right now ignoring the fact that the light from that star left millions of years ago and may not reach us for another million acknowledging the fact that it might already have exploded spectacularly and birthed new stars in its own place while the math or science breaks down when we cross those thresholds from newtonian or einsteinian to quantum physics or gets more and more irrelevant when we consider those liminal or singular points like black holes or the Big Bang, our our imaginations of these times and places doesn't. 
And I hear the objection. But our, imagine, our imaginations don't affect or impact anything about that system, so it's not really a force or a factor. Yet we know that the fact of observing has the power to change or collapse prob- probabilistic phenomena, right? The observation phenomena, which maybe I should have talked a bit more about. And yes, this is one step more tangible than simple imagination. Observation is more tangible than imagination. But while measuring and observing information may affect the system, imagining it, or perhaps having intention toward it or loving it, changes us. We think, therefore we are. We are, therefore we do. We do, therefore it is. Would we have observed the wave function, thereby collapsing its probabilities to a point if we didn't care? Our intention to look at and search out the stars is what wills us to go out there one day and affect them. If it is possible, and I don't see why not, to surpass the speed of light or alter gravity or time, this will have profound effects on the universe, and it will have had its start in the instantaneous, powerful speed of love. I may pray across time and space, and time and space, not to mention God, will respond and be changed if for no other reason than by the simple fact that by me doing this at all changes me reciprocally and relationally. I don't know what to call that if not love. So that maybe was a little bit too complex, but the idea of our will, our love, surpassing some of the physical boundaries like time and space. So this Mm. adds all sorts of fun questions. Mm Mm-hmm. If you find that question interesting and more on astrotheology, join us in part two. In the meantime, beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you you. Go in peace.